Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that we are dependent upon you in everything. And especially now when we are ready to hear your word through the preaching of your scriptures, Father, would you give us your spirit? Would you open our hearts and minds? Would you make us tender? Would you make us attentive? Would you make us willing to receive your word? We pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory and honor. Amen. Well, last week, we made the observation that this passage is perhaps the most challenging, difficult of all of the book of James. Um, just a note, for those of you who are here for the first time, we've been working through the book of James for about 24 weeks now, um, and uh, not even are we continuing the sermon series, but today we are actually in the second half of a sermon that started last week on sickness, uh, prayer, and the church. And our aim this morning is to continue to work through the difficulties that this passage gives to us uh, as we consider, consider this very important theme of, of sickness, prayer, and the church. Um, the difficulties are the following. I mentioned last week that there are a number of difficulties, but I didn't tell you what they are. I just gave you the first one last week. Today we're going to work through, through two more. Last week we looked at the difficulty of what is the, symbol, what is the significance of anointing with oil and the practice of of anointing with oil. Second, a second difficulty is what is a prayer of faith that will save the one who is sick? What is a prayer of faith that will save the one who is sick? A third difficulty is what is the connection between sickness and sin and the confession of sin? And why are these brought together in our passage? Well, last week we looked at the first difficulty at the significance of the anointing with oil. And I just want to remind us what we, what we covered last week. Uh, this, this practice of anointing with oil, we said it's not for medical purposes. It is not for the purpose of preparing a person who is sick um, to prepare them for death, as the Roman Catholic Church practices. Also, it is not a practice that causes healing in and of itself. We instead looked at a, uh, another venue in which we might be able to understand this practice of anointing with oil. It's more, most likely um, that it had a symbolic meaning. It's a visible sign symbolizing several realities. Now, if you were to, to sort of read through some of the commentaries that will, they will tell you how many possible explanations of symbols there are, there's at least 10 of them. Now, we're not going to go through all of them, and last week I only counted 
or express the two that most likely, or the ones that I felt most compelled by the text. But I want to tell you, these are mere explanations. We, we don't know for certain which ones, uh, which symbolism it signifies. But the, the two ones that, may, that make most sense in light of all of, of James is that the anointing with oil, just like in the Old Testament, was a symbol most often used as a way of consecrating someone to the Lord, whether the priests or the kings. In a similar way, the, the anointing with oil can be used as a symbol of consecrating someone for God's special care in the midst of that sickness. It's a way of, of consecrating someone, setting someone aside for God's special care and intervention. In a second way, it, it can also symbolize, again, going back to the Old Testament, it can symbolize the promises of the Messianic age. Specifically, in Isaiah chapter 61, we are given a list of the kind of things that the, that the servant of the Lord will do when he will come. And one of the things given in that list in Isaiah 61 is that he will give the oil of gladness instead of mourning and sickness. In that sense, uh, Isaiah 61 um, communicates to us that the oil could be a symbolism of the promises of restoration that the Messiah will bring in his messianic age. In that sense, it could be that the anointing with oil, oil would be this, this anointing of, of gladness. Whether or not the Lord chooses to restore full health to someone in this lifetime, we know for certain that the Lord will restore our physical bodies even from death when he will give us a new resurrection body. And in that sense, no matter what we face, we can be anointed with this oil of gladness awaiting for that full restoration of the messianic age. Bottom line is, we don't know if, any of, if even these two explanations are truly there. At best, we present them as possible explanations and symbolisms of this practice. So we should not be too dogmatic about them. Here's a few other things we said about the practice of anointing with oil last week. Um, it clearly points out that the anointing with oil seems to be limited to, um, at least in, in, in the case of the sick person calling, um, call the elders of the church. While all members are called to pray for a sick person, the call to pray and, and anoint with oil seems to be um, reserved for the elders of the church. Why? Why the, only the elders? The answer is, from the text, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Again, one of those um, ambiguities. Perhaps we may, we may understand that since in, 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 the, in the book of Acts, we see that the elders were made to be overseers by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes some men who are qualified by Scripture to be overseers, uh, to care and shepherd the, the flock of God, the church of God. In that sense, it is possible that, that in, the, in the times of sickness, a sick person may call on the overseer, on the elders of the church, because they represent the, the rule of Christ, the reign of Christ, the care of Christ, the shepherding of Christ for the church. It's also possible that the kingdom, since a kingdom, um, I'm sorry, since a church represents the kingdom of God on earth, and since the elders are the official um, overseers of the church, then in calling the elders of the church, a sick person is really calling those who represent the kingdom of God. They come to represent the kingdom of God, the whole church. 
and anoint and pray over a sick person. Again, this text does not tell us specifically. What's interesting is that this call for anointing with oil happens not at the initiative of the elders. It's not that the elders recommend, hey, would you like me to come and, and anoint you with oil? It is really at the initiative of the sick person to do that. And I said last week, if any of you feel inclined and desire to do so, I would gladly come and, and do this practice as the Lord uh, instructed us. Now, the fact that a sick person is instructed to call not only other Christians or just not only the church but the elders also points out to the assumption, the strong assumption that James had that each Christian should be a part of a local church that has spiritual leaders, elders who can care and watch over, that, over the members well. Um, all this was a review of last week. Today, as we continue our study of sickness, prayer, and the church, let's, let's tackle two more challenges in this passage. And the first challenge we will tackle this morning is, what is the prayer of faith? The second challenge will be, what's the connection between sickness and, and sin? Let's look at the first one. What is the prayer of faith in verse 15? Verse 15 makes it clear that uh, it is not simply the anointing with oil, that will save a sick person. Rather, the means by which God will save someone or will heal someone is prayer. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, why is this verse difficult? Notice what it says. The prayer of faith will save the sick. It does not say that the prayer of faith can save the sick. It doesn't say that the prayer of faith might save the sick. It says the prayer of faith will save the sick. Now some think that James refers here to the, not to physical healing, but to the salvation of the person, the spiritual salvation of the, of the sick person. But this explanation is not convincing in light of what happens in verse 16 when James comes back to the theme of, of healing. But James says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And yet, dear friends, we know that there are many times in our lives when the Lord does not save the sick. When the Lord would allow someone to actually go through sickness, not only for a long time, but, but even experience death because of that sickness. I could give you stories. And if, if we were to sit around and open the mic for stories where you know that you have prayed for the Lord to heal someone, and yet it did not happen. Does that mean that the Lord is not able to heal? No. Because we know, I could say, I give you stories of, of situations where the Lord has healed in miraculous ways. So we know the Lord can heal. But what is this verse that speaks about this reality, this certainty that the prayer of faith will heal the one who is sick. If it doesn't happen, does it mean that the prayer, the faith of the person uh, is deficient in some way? By no means. So how should we understand the prayer of faith? Well, this prayer, this phrase, prayer of faith, is actually very unique in the Bible. It's only here found in this particular language. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, we know that we have the prayer with faith or prayer because of faith or faith that manifests itself in prayer. 
And we know from Scripture that whenever we pray, we should approach God with faith. Praying in faith. All our prayers must be in faith. Yet here James refers not simply to our general prayer that we come to the Lord uh, and, and, and believe that He's able to work. This particular prayer is more than just that general kind of prayer. There are times when we come before the Lord and we ask of Him something very difficult, something that seems impossible, and we know God is able to heal. God is able to resolve a situation. But that is not what James is talking about here. The phrase prayer of faith is a prayer that actually brings the healing of the sick. Friends, there might be times in prayer when God may actually give us the faith and the assurance that he will act in a particular way. That's different than expressing to him our wishes or our desires. As someone said, the prayer of faith is the conviction that it is the will of God to perform this particular healing. Now, how do you get this faith? How does that conviction come into your heart? Well, friends, let me be very clear. You do not work it up. You do not just tell yourself that because you want it to be so, it can be so. Because you desire it to be so, and because the Bible says it's possible to be so, you just claim it to be so. That's the gospel of name it and claim it. That is not what this prayer of faith is about. Who gives the conviction that a particular outcome will actually be the case? Who gives that conviction? Only the Spirit of God. Because only God knows what He will do. We don't. When we pray, we pray believing that God can do something. But we don't know if He will do it. And yet there could be times when the Spirit of God so works in our times of prayer that He gives a conviction that it will happen. That's the gift of faith. Now, friends, that gift of faith must be given to us from above. We, we, don't, we don't create it. I love how Doug Moo speaks about this. He says, the faith with which we pray is always faith in the God whose will is supreme and best. Only sometimes does this faith include assurance that a particular request is within his will. Now, when someone is sick, our prayer is that God would heal that person, and we believe he can. But God may not give us a certainty that he will. And therefore, we can, we can end that prayer and, and close, including that prayer, Lord, may your will be done. We know that you can, but may your will be done. Friends, we must be cautious of not presuming that our will is the will of the Lord in such situations. So as we think about the prayer of faith, realize this is not 
our faith in what we would like it to be and just work it up and just believe that it can and just claim it that it will without actually that claim to be given by God. So be cautious of, of teachers who will simply say, if you just claim it or, or, or pretend like you, you have it, just pretend like it's already yours and come to God with that kind of pretense, oh, friends, be very cautious of that. We always come to the Lord knowing that His will is supreme and best. And if the Lord is the one who impresses upon our hearts a particular outcome, then pray in faith for that outcome. Um, the promise of verse 15 should challenge all of us to take prayer seriously. Friends, in the act of praying, the Lord may give us that special gift of faith, revealing to us a specific will so that our prayer can be in light of that prompting of God. Our prayer can be a prayer of faith. And with James, we can say, yes, the prayer of that kind of faith will heal the one who is sick. What about the connection between sickness and sin? What about the connection between sickness and sin? Look again at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Interesting. Here we come to a, another difficult and often misunderstood connection. What is the connection between sickness and sin? Well, let's, let's start with the very beginning of the Bible. At the very beginning of the Bible, we are told that the reason why pain is introduced into the world, the reason why pain and death is introduced in our cosmos, in our creation, is because of sin. It's because of rebellion. The entire creation is now affected by the curse of our rebellion. Oh, friends, realize that every time we see the brokenness of either sin or death, I'm sorry, of suffering or death, it is an opportune time for us to remember it was not supposed to be so. And we yearn it not to be so. And we are told that one day will come when it will not be so. That, that, that promise is given in Revelation 21. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. A time will come when that will be gone. But friends, we are still living in the time when it's not gone. We still live in the time when pain and suffering and mourning is part of our current existence. And when you see that around you, it's a wonderful opportunity for us to reflect on the story of the gospel. It was not supposed to be so, but it became so because of the rebellion of humanity against our Creator. But because of Christ, we have hope that it will not be so forever. And all those who repent and trust in Christ for their salvation, all those who turn away from their rebellion and turn to God through Christ, all of them can embrace this hope that a time will come when this will not be so, because God will put away all sin. Well, friends, if you've never trusted in Christ for this salvation, if you've never responded to God by repenting of your sin, I would love to encourage you to do so even today. And if you'd like to know what, how to do that and what to do about that, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But realize that in one sense, 
all suffering, all sickness is a, a side effect of the macro act of rebellion against God by all humanity. Now, does this mean that every sickness that we encounter may or necessarily is caused by a particular sin in our lives? Does this mean that every time you're sick, it is because of a particular sin that you have done? The answer is no. We see many examples in the Bible, or, many, or we see clear examples in the Bible where sickness is not brought about by a particular sin. Job is a good example. We know what Job went through, and it's very clear that Job experienced this, not only the tragedies in his life, but even his personal sickness, uh, not because of any particular sin in his life, but because of something that happened between Satan and God, a, a transaction that happened between Satan and, and God. Now, it's Job's friends tried to convince Job that his sickness was because of his sin, but God vindicated Job and made it clear that it was not because of sin. Or here's another example. In John 9, Jesus encounters a man who um, was blind from birth. Remember the story? When the disciples came to Jesus and asked Jesus, um, Lord, uh, is it this man who sinned or was it his parents that he is in this condition? And Jesus responded to them and said, in John 9, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So friends, we must be very cautious in trying to always make a connection between a sickness and a particular sin. And yet, there are other examples in the Bible where the connection between sickness and sin is made. I'll give you two examples. In John 5, Jesus encountered a crippled man who had been invalid, had been crippled for 38 years. And Jesus asked him, would you like me to heal you? What a question for a sick person. Would you like to be healed? So he responds, the goes on, the Lord heals him. A few days later, Jesus meets this man in the temple. And Jesus tells him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Interesting. It's a startling thought to think that the choice to sin could bring this man something worse than being crippled for 38 years. Because I ask you, if you knew that God would bring something worse than being crippled for 38 years, would you choose to sin? Some food for thought. In 1 Corinthians 11, the famous instructions that we are given of how to practice and carry out the Lord's Supper, Paul gives some instructions, and he says, before the Lord's Supper, before you take it, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Interestingly, Paul seems to make this connection that it is possible that there is a connection between sickness and sin. 
God can allow sickness in our lives because of our sin. So a sickness should be an opportunity for us to examine ourselves to see whether or not there is unrepentant sin in our lives that we should turn away from. Again, it is possible. We should be cautious of always assuming that there must be a connection. We should be very cautious of always assuming that a connection must be there. Nevertheless, even if there's no connection between a particular sickness and a particular sin, the times of sickness can be a wonderful opportunity to examine our own lives of sin in general. Friends, in sickness we are reminded how frail we are, that we are not self-reliant, we're not self-dependent people that we once thought we were. In sickness we are reminded that we are temporal, that we, are, we, we have this body and no matter how good of a care we take of it, no matter how well we diet and how well we exercise, this body will decay, this body will break down. It reminds us of our finitude. In sickness we are reminded that the things we are attached to in this world cannot satisfy. Think of how many attachments you hold dear to your life and how many of those can sustain you in sickness. In sickness, there's very few things that really start mattering in life. Now, even if there's no particular sin that, that the Lord brings to your mind as a cause of a sickness, sickness may be a wonderful time when we can examine ourselves to see where we have cherished sinful attitudes or desires. If we have grown cold towards God, if we have developed subtle idolatries that are on the back burner of our lives, in sickness we're given a chance to take a more serious look at our lives and confess our sins before God. But at the very least, in sickness, we have a chance, especially if we're bedridden, to spend more time when we can do nothing else but perhaps pray and read His Word. It can be a wonderful time with the Lord when we're sick. So friends, don't waste your sickness. It can be a time of refreshing spiritually for you if you examine yourself in light of God's Word. Now the connection between confession of sin, prayer, and healing comes to a climax in verse 16. Let's look at verse 16. Here James addresses not only the sick person, he now speaks to the whole congregation. He says in verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Remember, in verse 15, 14 and 15, he spoke about the sick person and the elders of the church. Now in verse 16, he seems to be addressing the whole community, the whole congregation, and says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now friends, all Christians, all Christians are encouraged to live out their Christian life as part of a local church and be able to reach out to their elders. We looked at that last week. But what's interesting is that the confession of sin is not to be carried out only by the sick person to the pastors or the elders or the priest. The confession of sin or the confession of sins is to be carried out in the one another relationships. Friends, do you realize that the life of a church, the life of the members of the church should be characterized by trust and openness to confess our sins to one another? 
This is supposed to happen in the life of the congregation. Friends, the church is not a place where we should hide our sin. The church is not a place where we should pretend like there is no sin. When we are caught in the traps of sin, we should want to go to our brothers and sisters and say, would you help me? Would you pray for me? Would you help me fight off the sin? Can I talk to you about how I can fight off this particular sin in my life? But so often, friends, so often when we fall into sin, even when Christians fall into sin, and for those of you who are non-Christians this morning, if you're visiting with us, let me just break the ice for you. Christians still sin. Sadly, we still do. Hopefully, not intentionally, but sometimes even intentionally. When we are caught in the traps of sin, our sinful hearts, our sinful hearts incline us to hide away, to explain away, to find reasons why we're doing what we're doing. One of the ways we express that propensity to hide away is that we stop showing up to church. For the fear that someone might ask us, what's going on? One of the signs that you are in the traps of sin and you're starting to take the side of sin against God instead of taking God's side against your sin is that you actually stop attending church because you are now taking a deliberate act of hiding away your life in a particular sin matter. Or I've seen this pattern before. It's very possible that someone would say, okay, I'm not going to give up going to church, but I'm going to go to another church where no one knows me, where it'll take a while for people to figure out what's going on in my life. So I'm going to start going to another church where no one will bother me about my sin. Friends, even in that case, yeah, you may continue to go to church, but, but your choice to move on to some other place is because you're actually trying to start fresh in a um, zero neutral uh, zone where no one knows you. Friends, these are some ways in which we hide away in our sin. One of the signs that you are taking the wrong side in regards to your sin is that you're starting to hide. French, a church is not a place for perfect people. If anyone told you that or somehow you're convinced of that, they taught you wrong. The church is not a place for perfect people. And by perfect, we mean sinful. I mean, uh, sinless people. Every member of every church that I have seen or been around has been a sinner. But among the sinners, there is a category of sinners among all the sinners. There is a category of sinners who have chosen to take the side of God against their sin and fight off sin whenever it happens in their lives. And that's the members of the church. The members of the church are people who take the side of God against our own sinfulness. 
and we recognize we're all in this together and we need the help of one another. Oh, friends, realize that when we come to church, we should come to a place where it is safe and we are encouraged to confess our sins to one another. Now, when we fall into sin and we start confessing our sins to one another, some people think that the church should be a place where it is okay to continue to live in sin intentionally. Well, that is not possible. For several reasons. One of the reasons is because of what it means to confess our sin. There's a number of reasons. We could go into a number of reasons, but let me just point out what, is it, what does it mean to confess our sins when it says confess your sins to one another. For some people, confessing their sin means simply acknowledging that they have done something wrong and they stop there. They have no desire to turn away from it. They just know they've, they've done something wrong. They acknowledge it. It, it happened. And the story ends there. Some people want to confess their sins simply to get rid of the consequences of sin, not to turn away from sin. Some people want God's forgiveness of sin, but do not, God, do not want God to take away their sin from them. They want to hold on to their sin without having the consequences of their sin. So they confess their sin to the Lord, wanting to get rid of the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin, but they don't care for God to take the sin away from them. Friends, that's not possible. To confess our sins means not only that we acknowledge that what we have done is wrong, but that we want to turn away from it. Oh, friends, our confession of sin is meaningless if all we want to do is get rid of the penalty of sin but not the practice of sin. Notice also that this confession of sin is not just a matter between you and Jesus. Some people say, my sin is none of your business. Let's read again verse 16. Confess your sin to who? To one another. Friends, we should be a community of people who confess our sins to one another. The Lord has placed the church to be a community that watches over us, that encourages us, that supports us, that strengthens us, that comes alongside us in our battle against sin. So we should be open to talk about it with one another. Some people don't want to confess their sins because of shame. What would people say if they find out that this is what I struggle with? Friend, if you confess your sin because you want to turn away from it, I just want to let you know, it brings joy to our congregation. It brings joy to heaven when sinners repent. And that's not just a repentance of conversion. That's a, the daily repentance that we can practice. 
And if it brings joy to heaven, it should bring joy to God's people when we see someone come up and say, listen, would you pray with me or would you come alongside me, help me in this process because this is a difficulty I'm struggling with. Friends, this is not a reason to shame. This is a reason to, jo- to be joyful that God is working in someone's life to ask for help, to battle sin. And some people don't want to confess their sin because they don't want to t- turn away from it. And they know that if they confess their sin, other Christians will joyfully want to come alongside them, graciously come alongside them to help them. But they don't want that. They want to somehow continue on and think that all they need to do is confess to Jesus without wanting to turn away from it. Friends, that confession is meaningless and empty and powerless. Notice that the promise of healing is not only for the praying for one another, The promise of healing is given to a community that both confesses their sin to one another and prays for one another. Friends, it is possible that the Lord is testing us with sickness to purify us, to lead us to examine ourselves. Not that sickness is always a discipline from the Lord, because there are many times when it's not a discipline from the Lord. It's just an opportunity to practice our endurance. But yet... Times of sickness may be wonderful times when we can examine ourselves. And if the Lord brings to light sin in our lives, that we should confess that sin, not just between us and the Lord, but to one another, that we would encourage one another in this path. Friends, can I tell you this is a great encouragement to another believer when he sees another person start being vulnerable with their sin. It encourages other Christians to become vulnerable as well. It encourages other Christians to start opening up It blesses a congregation. When a congregation practices this practice of confessing our sins to one another, the Lord can heal in those times. I'm so encouraged when I see people do that in our midst. I'm so encouraged when people are not afraid to do that. And I pray that the Lord will continue to increase us that desire. The worst thing that we can do, friends, is to come to church on Sunday morning pretending like there's no sin in our lives. Or pretending that somehow we're past the stage of fighting off sin. Somehow that we have made it. We have arrived at a sinless perfection. Oh, friends, on this side of glory, that is not possible. All of us are either on the side of fighting off sin or hiding it and excusing it. We all have it. But the two sides are very different. I pray that we would be a community of people where we are not ashamed, we're not fearful to confess our sins to one another, knowing that we will find here a community that will encourage us to fight sin off through the power of the gospel. And when we pray for one another, when we confess our sins to one another, the Lord promises that he will heal us. It is with that prayer, with that promise, that I encourage us to be bold bold with God and come to him praying and seeking him, seeking his face. May we be a a church where these truths are visible. And that's, we make the gospel a present reality. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for reminding us this morning of the truth that you have made us to be a community of people who are bound together by the gospel, bound together by the covenant of the faith. And in this covenant of faith, in this membership that we practice together, that you have called us to to have a safe place 
where we can call upon another when we go through difficulties, when we go through sickness, that we can call upon the, the leaders of the church to come and pray for us, that we can call upon the other members of the church to come and pray for us. Well, Father, thank you that we can also be a community where we can confess our sins to one another. Father, thank you for the promise that when, when that community practices these experiences, you promise to heal us. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would grow in these practices and we pray for your grace to be given to us that we may see your healing, both physical and spiritual, in our lives. And may our church grow in the grace of the gospel of being a church that cherishes one another in this way so that Christ might be exalted among us. In the name of Christ. Amen.